Saturday nights I don't always sleep well. And a lot of times that's because um, I, my, my sermon is on my mind. But it, it doesn't usually keep me awake like I can't sleep because I can't figure it out. <clears throat> but sometimes I just had the kind of day where there's a lot of other stuff going on in my brain and I can't slow the mind down. So while I'm laying here not sleeping, I might as well think about the sermon some more. And I was doing that a lot in the wee hours of the night. And I got up this morning not with any more clarity than I had when I went to sleep. <laughs> and those 3 a.m. Uh, thoughts about the sermon didn't do much. So I said, well, Lord, I, I really need to get this where it needs to be. It, I'd been working on it, but it just didn't feel like it was right. So I just paused. I said, Lord, show me what you want to say. And you'd think I'd do that right away every time. I, I tried to, honestly, and that's part of it, but it, it was almost an act of desperation on my part. And then God gave me this, what I'm going to share with you today. And so there's, there's a long list on your outline, and this is the list uh, that, that God gave to me this morning. So there's a reason he gave that to me, maybe a lot of reasons. So the scripture we're going to read throughout the message here, and we're in the sixth chapter of Romans, uh, set free to become a slave. We're talking about freedom in the next several weeks, free from law, bound to Christ, free from human struggle. So that, that's what's coming up in the next few weeks. <clears throat> and today, free to become a slave. Um, now, a couple of things about the, the early chapters here, excuse, excuse me, this, this particular chapter of Romans in the sixth as Paul has been doing from the start. He has to make sure that both the, the factions, the two groupings that were at each other within the church in Rome were, were getting along or trying to help them get along, which is kind of the main purpose of this letter, as well as teaching about the scriptures. But he's using that controversy, that division, that tension, as a way in to bring them a teaching. And, and this teaching is this whole book. And the two factions were a group of Jews who believed in Jesus, and among the Jews of that day, not many of them did believe in Jesus. And yet Paul was obviously one of them, and there were many others, and there were Jews in Rome who believed in Jesus in the church. The rest of the church was Gentiles, and they should have gotten along because we are all one in Christ, right? Well, they weren't. In the sixth chapter is one more example of this. In the beginning of the chapter, he's, uh, he's calling out false teaching among the Jewish believers when he uses this phrase. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. So that some of the Jew Jewish believers were thinking, well, if the law doesn't matter anymore, my whole law life was based on the law, that means that we can do what we want. And that isn't, of course, the gospel. And Paul was correcting that false teaching. But then in the middle of the chapter, he shifts attention to the Gentile believers in verse 15 when he says, what then? Shall, what then? shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. So you kind of have the law people, the Jewish believers, you have the grace people, the Gentile believers, but even their understanding of grace was not up to where it should have been. And he's correcting that in 
this writing right now. So he's calling out both of them here in the sixth chapter. What we're going to look at is the sin system and being set free from sin. And sin is one of those loaded words that we, when you, when you hear that word, you have an auto-reaction in your heart and mind, in your mind's eye about what sin is. You'll probably think of the thing that you struggle with. That'll probably be your first thought. Okay? We all have something we struggle with. We all have something we want to overcome. <clears throat> Perhaps it's a bad habit, perhaps it's even an addiction, but there's usually something that, that's the thing I, that's the sin that God wants me to work at, and i got to do it. And, and, and we should strive for that, but Paul is running much deeper when he's talking about being set free from sin in the context of Romans 6, okay? It's not just my thing, my struggle, my naughty thing that I'm doing, my terrible thing, my hurtful thing that I'm doing. It's more, it's deeper. I want to describe it this way. I'm going to call it the sin system. Sin is more than the personal and moral behaviors that every human being participates in. At a much deeper and larger level, a corporate level, it is also a system. A system that falsely manipulates all of humanity into believing lies that prevent us from becoming our true self. Jesus overthrew this system through his life, death, and resurrection. In Christ, we can know the truth and be set free by that same truth. This is what Paul's pointing to. A system, a way of thinking, a foundation that we all find ourselves in that's bigger than us. And so we are being set free from the system. Because if I'm set free from that one individual sin that I really want to overcome, praise God I did. Guess what? <clears throat> There's probably a list behind it. Okay, you nailed number one. How about number two? Let's work on that one. And it just keeps going and going and going. But when you are free from the system of sin, that's saying something else entirely. And to understand the sin system better, and this is what the Lord gave me early this morning, is we have to understand the lies that the sin system convinces us of. Some of these may be true of you, maybe a lot of them. Some of you can identify with these, and I'm not saying this is the only list. We could probably double this list easily, and you can probably add things to it. But understanding it is, it is what sin is at the deeper level, that when we live within these lies, we end up doing <clears throat> the dumb, immoral silly and stupid things that we keep finding ourselves doing again. So, so this is the root of the sin, if you will. It's all built on lies. And the first lie is the lie of control. My destiny is influenced by no one but me. Now, if you claim that about yourself, you're believing a lie. First of all, did you choose where, when, and to what family you would be born to? Nope. Did you choose any particular health struggles that you've had? Maybe there's something that you did that caused it, but <clears throat> you know, I got cancer a couple of months ago. I didn't control that. I can't, I can't buy myself control that. And when you look, too, at the reality 
that while in our nation we have wonderful freedoms and we are blessed to have them, there are countless people around this world that don't share in those freedoms and in fact are living in bondage of a whole variety of horrible things, including slavery in modern day, which is just absolutely abhorrent. But how much control do people in those circumstances have? How much control do you really have? See, this is the lie, one of the first lie that of the sin system. This is the lie of control. The second is the lie of identity. To tell yourself, I am not enough. To tell yourself that I'm not rich enough and strong enough and powerful enough and good looking enough and whatever enough is to you, whatever you feel you are lacking somewhere and you always seem like you come up short and, and, and that can depress you. And, and, and all of these kind of go in two directions. Some of them like they, you, you're lying about how wonderful you are, I'm in control, I'm on top of things, I'm powerful, and other times you lie yourself into a place of despair. So it, it works both ways, and the enemy doesn't care which way you go, as long as he has you believing the lie. Three, the lie of isolation. I am the only one who's gone through this. This pain, this tragedy, this struggle. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 5, that there is no temptation that you've encountered that is not, which is not common to man or to mankind or to people. In other words, in, in the area of temptation, there's nothing new. Even though it's new to you, even though it might be a, an incredibly struggle that you didn't see coming and now you're in it. And you feel like you're the only one. And perhaps you're very embarrassed and ashamed of it. So you're certainly not going to tell anybody about it. So you, you isolate. You get yourself alone. Alone. Because no one else possibly can understand how could they. Now while the implications are personal to you and distinct to you. The reality that other people have a similar struggle. Is a reality. Is True, but when we go into isolation, we want to believe that we're the only one and go into that poor, pitiful me, dark corner. Number four, the lie of shame. I am the problem. When you're struggling with something and you've, you try again and again, a bad habit, an addiction, and just in general, I am no good. See, shame is never from God. Guilt is. Guilt tells you what you did, Paul, that wasn't good. You're better than that. Come on. Shame says, Paul, you're no good. Do you see that difference? Shame wants to beat you up, chew you up, spit you out, leave you dead in the street and wash down the gutter. That's what shame wants to do. And the voice of shame keeps telling you how bad you are, how no good you are, how, how dumb you are, how ugly you are, and all these things. You, 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 you're no good. Well, guess what? At our core, how were you born? You were born into the image of God. And every one of you sitting here and everyone watching at home and everyone walking foot on this, 
on this planet and everyone ever has and ever will shares in that basic core reality. We are created in the image of God. We were fearfully and wonderfully made, it says in Psalms 139. What Now sin does do a number on all of us. It does distract us from that core good. It does... Uh, affect it where we don't believe it anymore about ourselves and that's why Christ came to to restore what's been lost or at least forgotten but at your core you are good shame says nah that's a lie no the lie is the shame itself you are not the problem number 5 the lie of blame which sometimes come at comes right after the lie of shame You can only take so much negativity, even when you're, it's being self-produced in your heart and mind. And, and, and the voice is your own. And it might be an echo of a person in your life. This is most difficult for people who've had difficult relationships in their life, especially within their own home, when, when their own family, maybe even you know, one or both parents has told them you're no good from the time you're little. You're no good, you're no good. You never amount to anything. And so you live down to that expectation. And so you start to believe that about everyone, about life. And that's not an easy thing to overcome. But after a while, you can only carry so much. And so you get angry and it has to go somewhere. So you find someone to vent it at. If it wasn't for him or her, things would be better. You know what? It isn't just him or her. It's them. It's that group of people. You know, we'd be so much better off without those Democrats. You know what? We'd be so much better off without those Republicans. You know what? We'd be so much better off with, you know, if those people of Islam would just go away. You know, and they might think, and probably do in many cases, you know, it's those Christians. They're the problem. See, there is an endless list of them at our disposal to take blame and say, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. Because I'm tired of blaming me because I'm so ashamed that I have enough of it. There's no no more room in here for any more shame. So I have to put it somewhere and we put it out on others. And they are not the problem. They can create problems, whoever they are. I'm not saying it's easy, but remember this. No matter who you are at odds with, whether it is at a personal level that has hurt you, or whether it is at a larger level it's just those people, remember every one of them shares the exact thing that I just talked about a moment ago. They are made in the image of God and they are loved by God. Period. Now whether or not they accept His love and draw life from that love and seek out the Son of God, that's up to them. But it's not up to us to dismiss them, to reject them, to push them away. And the more we do that, the more likely we get into the situation where, well, they're not even worth living. Wars in history have often been started by Christians. Because them, we have to get rid of them because that's somehow God's work. And quite often the enemy was other Christians who didn't believe exactly the way they did. 
and therefore they must be done away with. That is a lie. Number six, the lie of entitlement. My pain matters more than anyone else's. I have to be heard. I have to be taken care of. My needs come first. That can happen in, a, in the home. That can happen in the school classroom. That can happen in work. That can happen in your neighborhood. That can happen um, in the political realm through legislation. That can happen in multiple ways where individuals and people groups demand to be heard, demand to be served. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times to help people and people groups because of injustice that's happened. It is happening. We need to do as best we can through government to address those problems. But when I wear that as an entitlement, when I say that I deserve this, and that becomes my, my identity you know, because of my pain and, and put myself first. Jesus taught us that the first are at which end of the line? The last. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He flipped it all around. Jesus taught us about greatness, that if you want to be great, serve. And this is the reversal of thinking that Jesus is pointing to. And the lie of entitlement is just another one. A few more, the lie of independence. I don't need help from anyone. This is more of a guy thing, although women can certainly wear this one. Men, we're, we're, we're proud guys, right? I don't need any help. I got this. There was one of the churches I served in, neither of the current two ones, this is a number of years ago. Um, I, w- I was there at the church one day, and, and this fellow came in who was a member, and uh, he was um, oh, probably 35, 40 years old at that time. And he looked very different. Something on his face wasn't, wasn't right. And I said, hey, what's going on? Can I help you? And he said, Paul, I never asked for help from anyone in my entire life, but I'm asking you now. Wow. And I believed him. He kind of carried himself that way. Not that he was arrogant, but he was just, no, I got this, I got this, I got this. Well, something happened in his life where he didn't have it anymore. He couldn't handle it anymore. And it finally brought him to the place where he's ready to ask for help. We don't need to get to the crisis to ask for help. We don't need to have everything fall apart to ask for help. And too many people wait way too long to ask that question, that simple question, will you help me? That's what the church is made to do, isn't it? That's what, the, yesterday I, I, I invaded the, the ladies group, uh, the ladies retreat for like 10 minutes. I, I just came to say hi, and grab some coffee, and um, <laughs> said a prayer for their lunch, and it was good to see all of them. And, and I know that in that, in that gathering, Many who've been friends for many years and some new friends that came in for the day, there, there was uh, just this understanding that we're here to help each other. That's what the church is, what the church does. That's what the guys are doing on Mondays. We're, we're, we're just talking about life and how we can help each other and just hearing one another's story 
is really helpful. But the lie of independence that I don't need help is exactly that, a lie. Number eight, the lie of power. My world would be better if I were in charge. <laughs> your world, whatever that is to you, your world could be just your, your household and, and maybe your workplace or your neighborhood. We, we, we claim different segments of life and community as my world. And not that that's a wrong thing. We, we, there's such a thing as spreading ourselves too thin. So, but but if, if you're doing that in an effort to control everyone you can, then two things can happen. One, you're going to keep your world really small because you're going to only control so many people. Or secondly, you're just going to become power hungry and walk all over everybody to get more power and more control and more power and more control. And not all of them, okay? But sometimes that's... Why people go into politics. <laughs> more control. More power. More say. And, and both sides of the aisle have people in that category, that's for sure. All right? There's many there with the right attitude that want to serve others and help the country. There's others that, eh, I got my own thing I want to make happen here. But the lie of power that, that you can handle it. And really you can't and you shouldn't because every person that you are trying to control is their own person. And it's not fun to be controlled by another. And yet quite often people who get carried away with this lie will prey upon people that are timid, people that are wounded and weak, and people who don't know how to stand up for themselves and just kind of keep them in that place. And this is also part of the sin system. Nine, the lie of riches. All I need to be happy, happy is more something, usually money, riches, something like that. There was a, a lottery drawn, what, a couple months ago that was worth how many hundred billion? Or million, excuse me. <laughs> Like 600? Did, did one of them hit a billion yet? I mean, it seems like it's getting close. Um, now, now, let's be honest. I, I, I don't buy lottery tickets. Um, that's not a judgment on you if you do. Okay, it's just not my thing, right? But I think all of us, when you hear about that, even for a moment, don't you just think, what would I do if I had <laughs> X number of million dollars? Now, here's what Paul Miller does. When I, when I kind of enter into that little fantasy, in order to rationalize it before myself and before God, okay, here's all the good things I'm going to do, Jesus, if that would come to me. I'm not going to buy a ticket, but if you want to send it my way in the mail anyway by some really generous person who wants me to have it, which is a ridiculous fantasy too. But I'm going to do all these good things, and then there's something left for me. Uh, <laughs> that's what happens. And, and that won't make me happy. There's stories about people who've won the tens of millions or more who ended up bankrupt in a few years because they didn't know how to manage it. They overspent, they overcommitted, they gave it all away, you know, without really tracking it, having a plan for it, thought it would always be there and it wasn't, got taken advantage of. All of that happens to people, not every time, but quite often when people live, win huge amounts of money. Because that isn't what's going to make you happy. And number 10 is the lie of addiction. I know this isn't good for me. 
Except right now. That's what keeps addiction going. You know that this is harmful, this is not helpful, this is hurtful to me and to others, this is even dangerous. Uh, this time's different. Yeah, yeah, that was yesterday. I know that. And this is the last time. We tell ourselves those lies, and that, that keeps the lie of addiction alive. So I, again, we could add to that list, but I, I'm sure you can identify with at least a few of those. This is the system of sin that keeps us trapped in lies. When the serpent approached Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent used some of these lies. First, to try to persuade Adam and Eve, and it wasn't just Eve, by the way. When you read the text, Adam was standing there quietly. Try and prove me wrong on that. Just because he didn't say anything doesn't mean he wasn't there because he said they ate the fruit. She took a bite and gave him some. So he's kind of standing there, honey, why don't you deal with this? <laughs> so they were both at fault. But the tempter was using lies about, you know, you're being left out. You can have more power. God's holding out on you. Look at what you can have. And then when they gave in, the lies continued. You know what? The best thing you can do is go get a loan. The worst thing you can do is tell anybody and ask for help. So go hide there, cover yourselves up, and pretend that this didn't happen, and maybe God won't say anything. Lies. When that same tempter came to Jesus, written about in Matthew 5 and some of the other Gospels, how did, what was the, the tactics he used to try to dissuade Jesus? Not successfully, thank God, but Jesus was tempted about what? About riches, about power, about glory, rich, power, glorious. All the things he had, by the way, <laughs> already, and yet take it on for yourself, for your own purpose. That was what the tempter did. So the lies that the tempter uses are part of the sin system and they're part of our lives too, if we're honest with ourselves. Under law, you remain enslaved to this sin system. Let's go now to Romans chapter 6, read verse 15 and 16. What then, shall, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. My attempts to obey from the position of fear are destined to fail and produce no lasting change. When we try to appease God by obeying rules, by, by obeying the law, by being a good person, then the, your, the basis of that, the motivation for that, is fear. You know, try and prove me wrong on that. Because when you break a rule, what are you afraid of? You're afraid of being caught. You're afraid of having a bad reputation because you did that. You're afraid of what others might think. You're, you're, you're afraid of the punishment you might get, the consequences that could come from this, maybe already have. So, so the rule, the law by itself, is, is, produces fear in us. 
And, and that is not, that, that's not going to change the heart. And so the sin system knows that and just tries to keep us there in this fearful place. John writes in his first epistle, there is no fear in love, for fear has to do with punishment. But perfect love drives out all fear. And so when we choose the way of love, we choose the way of grace, which we'll touch on more in just a moment, that is a different way of thinking. It is a different system that we are now operating under, under grace. Sin system is a path to death. Down at verse 19, it says, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefits did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and results in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, by the way, when it says eternal life there, it's not just talking about heaven. The, the, the context of that phrase eternal life is present day, present, when you read it. So the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life right here, right now, which leads into forever with Him. You just prayed a while ago. We do it every Sunday. Your will be done where? Just in heaven, waiting for us when we get there. No, on earth as it is in heaven. So eternity begins now. That, that word eternity in the Greek has a broader meaning. Like we usually think of it as just heaven forever somewhere out of this world. But that, that word, it's an aeon. It's, it's really, you can call it life of the ages, the best life of the ages. And an indefinite time and age that you can enter into at any time and place. That's what eternity is. Not just heaven. I'm not, I'm not dismissing or getting rid of heaven by no means, but I'm saying... We don't have to wait for it. Okay? And he points to that here when he says, when you look back to what you used to be, you know, I hope you had enough change in your life that there was an old you that you don't want to go back to. Okay? All of us, if we're honest, hopefully have that. And you remember that and think, now, do you really want to go back there? Which brings me here to um, back in the beginning of this chapter, the third verse. It, it says this about baptism. It says, or, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, the beginning of this chapter, he's addressing primarily the Jewish believers. And when he says about being identified with baptism, he's he doesn't say it directly here, but it's most likely that they, in part, understood his words to mean this. When their people, that is the Jews, and the most cherished day that they celebrate to this day is the Passover, 
What happened just after the Passover? What was the next big miracle that we read about in the book of Exodus? It was the crossing of the Red Sea. So you had, now, 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 now get the sequence here and, and, and the application to a nation, and then it goes to individuals, right? So, so you had a nation in slavery who was set free, who was, went under the water, in the Red Sea, not, they didn't get wet because they walked on dry ground, but there were walls of water, so they were under the surface of the water and came out the other side in freedom. Slavery, baptism, freedom. That's what baptism means for us. And when I preached on this passage a couple of weeks ago, it wasn't just the water applied to you or going into the water and coming back up. It is what the meaning behind it. It is that you die. You went under the surface. You went under as a sign of the grave. You have died to sin. You've died in the sin system. And now you can live in a different system. And that system is under grace. Death is what the sin system produces. It can't produce anything better than that. It leads to death. And the 17th, 21st, 23rd verses all repeat that theme. But under grace... You are set free. The grace system. Um, in verse 17, and back into the middle of this passage, 17 and 18 says this, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. But you have been set free, you've been set free and have become slaves to righteousness. By the way, when he keeps using the word slaves here, and he talks about that, he's using human example. That, the, the audience that first heard this letter read, that's probably the way it was. Paul, Peter, John, they would write these letters, part of our Bible now, and they were delivered to a church. And there was probably great excitement when that letter came. And everyone would gather and they would hear the reading of what the apostle had to say. So if you were in that room, the first time these words were read, you may have been a slave, even that day. You may have been a slave that was freed, because in Rome you had both. Slavery in the Roman Empire was very varied. In some ways it was just as bad as the worst image you can think of and worst definition you can think of for slavery. In other forms it was, I don't want to say a kinder and gentler slavery, because people should never own people, period. But it was at least more livable especially in Rome, because Rome being the capital of this vast empire where all these riches came back to, guess what? It's a rich city. There's a lot of rich people. Rich people need people to help maintain their huge palaces. And so they would hire people. And, and they were really slaves. But so good were the conditions in many of these households, not all of them, but some of them, the conditions were so good that people would volunteer to be slaves because to live there as a slave was better than living back where they were. You know, which, by the way, think about the prodigal son story. What does the son, as he's sitting in the pig slop, decide in his mind? I don't deserve to be a son anymore after all of my horrible behavior, but I can go back and be a slave for my father. And that'll be better than this. Okay? So, so when Paul's writing about this, these people understood 
firsthand what slavery was in all of its various forms. And so he's using that as an example of being enslaved to a system of sin, but now being enslaved willfully, wantingly, into following the way of Christ, the way of grace, free to obey from your heart, free to learn a new teaching and a new way of thinking, a new system to live by, free to subject your life under the grace system. And it says, it uses the word allegiance there in um, the 18th, 17th verse, um, has now claimed your allegiance. That word is unique in the NIV, the New International Version, that, that English translation. In most other English translations, it comes out like this, to which you were committed, to which you were delivered to. So, so you've been supplanted. So you see why this is bigger than being free from that one thing in my life or those couple of things in my life that, I have, that I'm sinful with and I just wish I could get rid of that. See, this goes deeper. You, you're, it, it's like you're being picked up and moved completely. A complete change. Earlier in the chapter, it talked about um, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to Christ. That, was, uh, that word count was a financial term, almost like an accountant. So, so if, you're, if you're adding up a ledger as an accountant or you're just doing your, your, bank, your bank checkbook or now it's all online, but um, before you add up what you have, there is a true number about what you have. Now, you haven't added it yet, but your adding doesn't change it unless you're bad at math, okay? <laughs> but there's a true number that others just call it your, let's say all of your assets, okay? I have all these assets in my life, well, I got eight bucks, great, you know, but <laughs> whatever it might be, all right? When you don't even bother looking, there is a truth about your total number of assets, and the fact that you're not looking and maybe you don't even care doesn't change the truth about what it is. You see, you see what I'm saying? Being dead to sin means being alive to Christ. So your, your account with God is now filled with all the things he wants you to live and to be and to become. And, and it's ready for you. It's there. See, we're afraid to look. We're afraid to know, what do you really think about me, God? And if he would answer you that directly to you and sit down next to you and say, Paul, here's what it is. Jason, Marie, Cynthia, Shane, here, here, here's what I see in you. <laughs> and our first instinct would probably be, okay, I'm going to get it now. <laughs> it might be. Good news of good news. What he sees in you is that you're his child. And he starts there. And what he sees in you is love. And like I told the kids, the greatest truth is that God loves us. And that never stops. That never goes away. So let me wrap this up with a few verses that, that describe, I, I spent a lot of time about the system of sin. Let's look at the system of grace. The grace system, familiar verses. I have the, the, the text wrong here. This is actually Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So compare that to that list of, of lies. Which would you rather have? 
The grace system, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's what love does. It never quits. Love never quits. Say that. Love never quits. And God is love. So God never quits. He never gives up on you. And the last one then, the grace system uh, from Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things because you have been set free. The grace system has set you free. And the path to freedom is this from Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Father, may your truth go forth on our lives. And may it change us in big ways and small ways. But Lord God, plant one seed. And I ask for that now, Lord Jesus. Every person here in this room and everyone watching at home live or watching later on, whenever it might be, that in this moment, you would reveal the teaching from your scriptures today that you want them to focus on. Maybe they're embracing the lies in one particular lie and they need to see that you love them and you want to call them out of that. And maybe they have a hard time seeing your grace or believing that they're loved. Lord Jesus, help us to be there, to accept your love, because you always love us. In his name, amen.